Good morning. Thank you, Nick, for reading our scripture today. And thank you for being here. We are glad that you're here this morning, and we hope and pray that the time that we have together today will be beneficial to you. We are thankful for every opportunity that we have to worship God in a land that has so richly blessed all of us, and how grateful we are that we live in a country that affords us the blessings and freedoms that we enjoy right now. In our study today, we're going to be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, the passage that was read a moment ago, verses 5 through 9, 1 Peter chapter 5. And the topic today, the title of our lesson, God Genuinely Cares for You. Words can sometimes be very hollow. I know that there are a number of people that sometimes will say to us individually, if you have any needs, whatever, call me. Let me know what I can do for you. And then there are others who will say, I care about you. But when it's all said and done, ultimately, actions speak louder than words, don't they? It's very easy to tell somebody that you care about them or you love them or you'll do what you can for them. But the real question is, do you genuinely mean it? One of the things that strikes me about the passage that we're looking at today, Peter, of course, talks about the genuine care that God has for those of us who belong to the human family. To understand that these are not just hollow words. But rather, when God says He cares about us, He means it. He genuinely means it. So with that in mind, I want us to look at 1 Peter chapter 5. And the first thing I want us to do is talk for a moment or two about our attitude in times of trial and temptation. What about our attitude? Peter's going to talk in this context about the inclination, I think, that is prevalent among those of us in the human family. So, look, if you would, at what Peter says beginning in verse 5. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another and be clothed with humility. For God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you in due time, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. The natural inclination in life is to say, I don't need any help. Not only do I not need help, I don't want any help. And I'm sure not going to ask for help. I understand that. You know, as members of the human family, sometimes we are very private and we choose not to let others into our world. And I think that there is this inclination sometimes to see ourselves as independent without any need from anyone. What Peter is saying here is that even though there is this natural inclination to never ask for help, to not want help, to not seek out help, what Peter says is we need to have a sense of humility in our lives and with that spirit of humility, 
have the understanding that there is a God in heaven who genuinely cares about us and wants to help us. So with that in mind, think about the divine instruction here. The instruction again, listen to what Peter said. God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, in light of that, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. So number one, what Peter is saying is, as a child of God, we need to stay humble. I think there's a reason for that. Humility is one of the great virtues of New Testament Christianity. Matter of fact, there are a lot of folks in days gone by, biblically speaking, that faced a lot of heartache and trouble because of pride. And you remember Solomon said, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. So pride can ultimately undermine our faith. So Peter here is saying, look, you need to stay humble in life. And if you will stay humble, then you will see the necessity of seeking help from God. So listen to verse 7. Peter said, Casting all your care upon Him, for He cares for you. I said a minute ago that sometimes we have difficulty asking others for help. But what Peter is saying is we might be reluctant to ask others for help, but we ought not ever be remiss in looking to God for help, seeking Him out, recognizing that there is a God in heaven who genuinely cares, who is interested in our welfare. He wants what's best for us, and He has provided us with an outlet that we might approach Him and lay upon His throne all of our cares and all of our anxiety anxieties in life. So, number one, our attitude. Attitude is very important. And I think sometimes we fail to remember that there is a God in heaven who is there to help us in life, whether it be the trials of life or the temptations of life. You remember back in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 17, the Hebrew writer talked about Jesus being a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God. It was Jesus that made propitiation for the sins of the people. But then in verse 18, he said, in that he himself has suffered, he is able to aid those who are tempted. In other words, Jesus faced the temptations and the trials of life. And because of that, he has the ability to sympathize and aid us. Over in Hebrews chapter 4, in verse 15, the writer said, We have not a high priest that cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but one who has been tempted in all points like as we, yet without sin. And the idea is that Jesus, because He has experienced what we face in this life today, because He has lived here among us, clothed in human flesh, tasted the trials and the temptations of life. He has the ability to sympathize with us. Not only sympathize, but He can empathize. He understands our plight, doesn't He? So in light of that, He would say, let us therefore draw boldly under the throne of grace, that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so, there is a God in heaven who wants us to seek His help. 
There's a second thing I want to share with you in our study. First, we talk about our attitude in times of trial and temptation. But what about our actions in times of trial and temptation? I think what Peter is saying to us in this context is that when we face debilitating things in this life, whether those things be trials or temptations, we can stand victorious because of God and because of His help. So, with that in mind, first and foremost, I want to suggest a couple of thoughts here. Again, listen to what Peter said in the long ago. Peter writes, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. This would imply that we trust God, that we trust Him enough to give Him our difficulties and burdens in this life. Now, think about, for example, David of the long ago. You remember in Psalm 56 in verse 3, David said, Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In Psalm 57, again, David said, Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me. He said, My soul trusts in you. And then he went on to say in Psalm 57, verse 2, In the shadow of your wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be passed by. And the idea here is finding in God refuge. Learning to trust God. As Solomon said, trust the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him. And what will He do? Solomon said He'll direct your paths. So trust in the Lord with all your heart. Again, there are some things that are easier said than done, aren't they? But learning to trust God, come what may. You can go back and read about many of the great saints in the Old Testament era. You can read about people in the New, in the New Testament that put their trust solely in Almighty God. So we think about First and foremost, trusting God, but then turning to God. Peter said that we are to cast all our cares on Him, and the reason being because He cares for us. Now you can go back and look at some of the great people in days gone by. David, for example, I mentioned him a moment ago. Do you remember when David stood toe-to-toe with Goliath? Goliath was nine feet, seven and a half inches in height. Now, there are some folks today that play professional basketball that may be 7'1", seven, 7'2", seven, maybe even 7'3". Goliath was nine feet, seven and a half inches high in height. His coat of armor weighed 125 pounds. Now, think about that for a minute. Imagine somebody filling a backpack with weights, rocks, or stones. And that backpack weighs 125 pounds. How'd you like to carry that around all day? So here's Goliath, this massive giant. And because of his height and stature, 
The children of Israel were afraid, were afraid of him. And he taunted them day and night. And here was David, a small fella in stature. And yet David was willing to stand toe-to-toe with this giant. And guess who won? Wasn't Goliath. David trusted in God. And if you look at the life of David, David was a man who turned to God when he faced difficulties in this life. Let me give you another example. In the book of 2 Chronicles, there's an interesting account of the two kingdoms that had split following the death of Solomon. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom, the children of Israel, or Israel. And their king was a man by the name of Jeroboam. The southern kingdom had a king by the name of Abijah. And the Bible says that these two nations, these two kingdoms, set themselves in battle array against one another. Now here's the interesting thing. The northern kingdom, they had 800,000 troops. The southern kingdom had 400,000 troops. Now, how would you like to be a military leader? And you're going to war, you're going to battle, and your opponent has twice the number of troops that you do. Who do you think would win? I mean, two to one? If you look at the record you would assume that the northern kingdom with their 800,000 troops would have slaughtered the southern kingdom. But the Bible says the southern kingdom prevailed. And in that context, the Bible says 500,000 troops from the northern kingdom were killed. And do you know why the southern kingdom was victorious I can tell you why. The text says it. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, the Bible says, because they relied on the Lord. That's the key right there. Whatever we face in this life, we've got to learn to trust God and to turn to God. To literally turn everything over to Him. In Psalm 55, there's another great illustration. In Psalm 55, we have a record of David. And David had been taken advantage of. And the person that had taken advantage of him was somebody very close to him. But as you read this narration in the 55th Psalm, there's some things that really just leap off the pages. Sometimes when you read certain passages of Scripture, you can identify with the sentiments of the inspired writer. I like what David said in Psalm 55, and no doubt the pressure was great. And so David said, Oh, that I had wings like a dove, for then I would fly away and be at rest. Let me ask you this question. Because of the magnitude of things that you faced in this life, have there ever been occasions when if you had your wish, you could just pack up, escape, get away? Remove yourself from the difficulties and trials that you're facing. I mean, wouldn't it it be nice to just take a week or two and just be separated 
from all of our heartaches and sorrows and trials and temptations. It's what David wanted. He said, oh, that I had wings like a dove, then I would fly away. And listen to what he said, and be at rest. Trials and temptations in life don't necessarily afford us rest and peace and tranquility in life. So what David is saying is, you know what, I'd like to remove myself from this. But in verse 22, here's his admonition to all generations of people. He said, cast your burden on the Lord. And what will He do? He will sustain you. Do you trust God? Do you turn to Him for victory in times of trial? So on the one hand, we can be victorious over the trials of life, and then secondly, we can be victorious over the temptations of life. Now, listen again to what Peter says. Let's pick up in verse 8. Peter said, be sober, be vigilant or watchful. And why? Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Peter here is simply reminding us of the efforts of our adversary, the devil. And Peter is saying that the devil is always lurking. He's always walking about. His intent is to destroy, to undermine, to hurt, to harm those of us who belong to God. And so in light of that, there are a couple of thoughts here. Number one, Peter said we need to be sober. The word sober here is interesting because here's what it means. To abstain from wine. Now, one of the dangers of alcohol is it compromises our thinking, doesn't it? When people use alcohol and they are under the influence of alcohol, their senses and their perception are not what they ought to be. And there are times when people lack that ability to discern, to make decisions that are wise, and that's one of the dangers of alcohol. So what Peter is saying is, you need to be sober. You've got to understand, the devil's always walking about, and you've got to be able to discern his tactics his deceitful intentions. And there are a lot of folks that underestimate the power of the devil. When Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, he said, we're not, we're not ignorant of the devices of Satan. So you've got to understand how he operates. You remember James said, every man is drawn away by his own lust. Lust, when it has conceived, brings forth sin. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death. So the devil is always about trying to bait or lure us into temptation. His goal is to take us into captivity, to imprison us in a life of sin, to bind us. Remember Jesus in John chapter 8, when he said that those who commit sin become the bondservants of sin? 
Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 2 talks about those who are taken captive by the devil to do his will. And Peter's saying, look, you've got to understand, this roaring lion is out here. He's doing everything within his power to destroy you as a child of God. So number one, you've got to be sober. And number two, he said, you need to be strong. Be sober, be vigilant or watchful. The reason being because your adversary of the devil walks about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. We've got to be strong in the Lord, as Paul taught in Ephesians chapter 6. In that context, Paul said, Be strong in the Lord in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the wiles or the schemes of the devil. The devil has his tricks, doesn't he? So Paul, in this particular text, brings to mind that we're involved in spiritual warfare. I think sometimes we underestimate the battle that's ongoing. That we don't necessarily see ourselves as soldiers in the army of Christ. And yet Paul said, endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Paul would write in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on life eternal. To recognize that we're at war with our adversary. He's not an ally, he's an adversary. He is identified by John as the deceiver of the whole world. And so, in light of that, Paul said, put on the whole armor of God. Can you imagine going to war without your battle attire? Can you imagine being on the battleground? And you have no protection. You have no weapon. You're just a sitting duck, aren't you? And so Paul's saying, you've got to be strong in the Lord. You know, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 had this to say, neither give place to the devil. In other words, don't afford him the opportunity to make headway in your life. Don't allow him in the door. Don't give him a crack in the door so he can come in. But rather, Keep him at bay. So to be sober and to be strong. Now there's a third thing I want to share with you in our study. First, we talk about our attitude. Secondly, our actions. But then thirdly, our assurance in times of trial and temptation. Number one, I want to talk about our confidence in the Lord. I genuinely believe that every Christian ought to be confident. Our confidence ought to be rooted in Almighty God. Do you believe that? Don't you think that God wants us to live with an air of confidence? I don't think God wants us to feel insecure or to lack confidence in our relationship to Him. But what about the confidence that we have as children of God? Listen now to what Peter said. Back up again and look at verse 7. Casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. The word casting here carries with it the idea of throwing our cares or anxieties on God. 
Do you really believe or do you genuinely believe that God cares about you? I know that there are people in our world today that if we were to poll them, quiz them, and ask them, do you believe God in heaven cares about you? You know what their answer would be? No. And that's sad. And really, that's one of the lies of the devil. The devil doesn't want you to believe that God is interested in where you are in life. He doesn't want you to believe that God genuinely cares about your plight on planet Earth. Sometimes we feel all alone. It's amazing that we live in a world of some 7 billion people, and yet many times we feel isolated, alone, estranged from the human family. Maybe it's just the times that we live in. When I was a child growing up in Chattanooga, the neighborhood that I lived in, we knew everybody. I mean, that's just how people were. You knew your neighbors. You talked to them regularly. I had buddies in the neighborhood. We played regularly. We did a lot of things together. But contrast that to today. In our society today, many of us, we live in neighborhoods, and we have no idea who our neighbors are. We don't talk to anybody. We don't interact with anyone outside our little group. It's just a different time. But to understand that there is a God in heaven who cares about us. And we might feel alone and isolated. And it might be the case that we feel like no one cares about us. I think one of the great things about being a child of God is that as God's people... We care about one another, don't we? At least we're supposed to. I can't tell you the number of people over the course of the last few months that have reached out to me, to Nancy, expressing how much they care for us, their prayers for us, their thoughts, their willingness to do whatever. And typically, I always tell people, look, the best thing you can do for us is pray for us. But there's a God in heaven who cares for you. And not only does He care for you, but He will comfort you. Have there been times in your life when you have been inconsolable? Life hasn't gone your way. You've shed tear after tear after tear. You've been hurting. Your heart has been broken. You have been agonizing over a certain situation or circumstance in life. You're bleeding internally. And yet to know that there is a God in heaven who not only cares, but who comforts. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul talked about the God of all comfort, the Father of all mercies. That's the God that we serve. A God who has the ability to comfort those who have been afflicted in any way, those who are hurting in any way. I know that there are times in life when people face situations 
that look very bleak and downright negative. But to understand that there is a God in heaven who cares and who will comfort 24-7. It's a wonderful thought. So we think about our confidence in the Lord, but then our conquest in the Lord. What Peter says in this context is that whatever comes our way, whatever challenges that we face in this life, whether those challenges be by trial or temptation, we can rise above them. That we can stand victorious over these things. So listen now to what Peter had to say in the long ago. Look again at verse 8. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now verse 9. Peter said, resist him, steadfast in the faith. Some translations say, whom we stand steadfast in the faith. So number one, we have to resist the trials and, yes, the temptations of life. How do we do that? With willpower. Listen again. Peter said, resist him, steadfast in the faith. Didn't James say in James chapter 4, resist the devil and what will he do? He'll flee from you. You remember in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus has been in the wilderness. He's fasted 40 days, 40 nights. The tempter comes to him to tempt him. Three temptations recorded by Matthew. In Luke's account, following those temptations, the Bible says the devil left him until an opportune time. So here was Jesus. He resisted the devil three times. What did the devil do? Left him. So number one, we've got to learn to resist the devil with willpower, and then secondly, to resist him with the word. Peter said, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. To resist what comes our way, first by willpower, number two, by the word. How was it that Jesus stood victorious over the devil? Didn't he say to each temptation, it is written? And didn't the psalmist say in Psalm 119, verse 11, Your word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you? Is there something to be said for taking the word of God and placing it within the heart? Yes. Didn't Paul write in Colossians chapter 3, in verse 16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, you let God's Word find a home in your heart. And what will that do? It'll strengthen you. It'll give you the strength necessary to overcome the temptations that the devil throws your way. Now, one other thing very quickly. Peter said, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same, S-A-M-E, that the same sufferings or afflictions are experienced by your brotherhood in the Lord. There are times in life when we face trials and even temptations. And sadly, come to the conclusion that we're the only one that's ever been here. We're the only one that's ever suffered to the degree that we're suffering. 
Remember Elijah? When Elijah had put to death those 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, in chapter 19, Jezebel, the wife of King Ahab, sent word to him, and basically told him, in effect, I'm going to put you to death. Elijah fled. Matter of fact, the text says his emotional state was such that he wanted to die. And God had to remind him that he still had 7,000 in Israel that had not bowed the knee to Baal. Again, I think sometimes we get the idea that we're the only ones. But Peter said, knowing that the same sufferings or afflictions were accomplished by your brethren. If you're a member of the human family, there are two things that you can just mark down as probable in life. Number one, trial, and number two, temptation. It's not a matter of if, it's just when. And they come day in and day out, don't they? So what we've got to do is to understand that there is a God in heaven who genuinely, and I would underscore that word, genuinely cares about us. When God says, I care about you, He means it. Not just hollow words. Jared and I were talking one day, and we were talking about in the, in the South, we have an expression. The expression is, let me know if I can do anything for you. And we were talking about a brother that faced some needs in life, reached out to some people, and they'd been telling him, if you have any needs, let me know. Reached out to them, they didn't do anything. And Jared said, in the South, that's just what we say. Now I get it, not everybody says, let me know if you need something, and they, they don't mean it. But there are a lot of folks, that's just what they say. But what God is saying is, I genuinely care about you. Not just words, but He means it. So today, as we close, I don't know what kind of struggles you're facing in this life. I know one thing. There are a lot of folks in this congregation that are hurting and suffering and sick. It's hard for me to believe that a week ago last night, Ray Maples called me on the telephone. Called me about 7 o'clock or 7.30, maybe a little later. And Ray was a very sick man at that point in time. A week later, he's in eternity. And Ray was fighting. And yet, he didn't win the fight. Life is incredibly fragile. And so what we have to understand is there's a God in heaven who cares for us, who will stand by us, who is there to help us, to aid us. As a child of God, listen, there are a lot of folks in our world today, they're trying to make a go of it on their own. You can't do that. I mean, I know there are a lot of people that they think they can get through this world without God. I don't know how. If you're not a Christian today, what would it take for you to obey the gospel today? I know you believe Jesus is the Son of God. Is it just an unwillingness to commit? To say, you know what, I need to do this. 
You believe Jesus to be the Son of God. Are you willing to repent, to turn from sin, as they did on Pentecost Day? Would you be willing to confess with your mouth what you believe in your heart, that Jesus is the Son of God? And then be immersed in water, knowing that when you're immersed in water, you contact the cleansing blood of Jesus that washes away all of your sins, Acts twenty two sixteen. God then puts you in the church. And if you're faithful till death, the promise is the crown of life. I suspect this past week when Ray stepped out into eternity, I can only imagine the first words that he heard. Welcome home, Ray. One day we want to go home. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, would you come to Christ? If you're unfaithful to His cause, would you not come home today? God in heaven is willing to forgive every sin. Won't you come as we stand and sing?